Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today, we're joined by Whitney Moon, Assistant Professor of Architecture at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where she teaches architectural history and theory, as well as design studios. Her research resides in 20th and 21st century art and architecture, with an emphasis on theatricality, performance, and ephemeral works. On today's site visit, we're going to discuss our recent trip to Bounce Milwaukee, an indoor adventure playground that hosts a wide variety of activities, including an inflatable sports arena, laser tag course, rock climbing wall, and other attractions geared towards a broad audience of patrons. Located just off the city's north-south freeway, Bounce Milwaukee is a destination for kids and adults alike, offering an exciting environment for birthday parties or rainy Saturdays, complete with alcoholic beverages and snacks for adults. The character of Bounce Milwaukee speaks directly to Whitney's passion for pneumatic architecture, the term used to describe membrane structures stabilized by the pressure of compressed air. First conceptualized in the 1960s, pneumatic structures were proposed as a progressive and lightweight alternative to standard construction techniques. They have since been utilized across a diverse assortment of professions as infrastructure for factory work to military operations used as decoys in times of war. We began by asking Whitney why she chose Bounce Milwaukee for today's site visit and how the space has piqued her interest. I decided to take the two of you on an adventure, and it was also quite an adventure for me as well, because I can't say that I have ever visited Bounce Milwaukee before. (laughs) Um, You know, being that I don't have young children, and I wouldn't say that I have an excess of free time to (laughs) go down to places like Bounce Milwaukee, um, it was obviously truly um, a first experience for the three of us. Um, But what is Bounce Milwaukee? Bounce Milwaukee is, um, let's say, a kind of adventure playground for children and adults that is filled with predominantly um, large and very colorful pneumatic or air-filled um, structures slash jungle gyms, um, and it also includes a variety of other entertainment um, possibilities like laser tag and rock climbing and arcade games. There's uh, food. There's also um, a bar. So um, really a kind of an all-in-one experience, um, quite inclusive if you think about the the diversity of age groups that it's catering to. But I think part of my intent here was to take the two of you to Bounce Milwaukee, partly to talk about pneumatics, because it's certainly um, a research and design fascination of mine, but I think also to, let's say, step outside of our comfort zone and to really um, 
be playful and to feel like we're kids for a few hours and maybe also realizing that we're actually adults and not <laughs> kids because uh, jumping around in a bunch of bounce houses uh, for a couple hours definitely tired us out. So we found this place just kind of right off the interstate and it we were struck by maybe the building as you pull into the parking lot, right, which looks like um, it's smaller than a big box, larger than a strip mall, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, it had like a distinct industrial park feel. And I mean, the first thing I noticed was its neighbor, which is a Lamar <laughs> uh, advertising uh, headquarters or outlet. Um, but it's a I guess it was just a pretty nondescript metal facade and the only indication of what was inside was a very bright sign that just says bounce. Yes, yes. <laughs> and definitely a sign that uh, looks, I mean, maybe it's almost difficult to place it. It feels like it's something that could easily be from the 80s or 90s. And I believe that this is a business that's opened in the last few years. Um, so a little bit almost of a kind of time warp and I'm sure a certain degree of intentionality of sort of probably a majority of the customers that they cater to who are over the age of 10 <laughs> are probably, you know, adults who um, grew up in the 80s and 90s. So mm -hmm. I think maybe sort of trying to locate us in, in terms of graphics and signage that, that feels familiar. Um, of course, I think as architects, always when you go into environments like this, um, how do you, uh, not to say that you have to churn off your uh, design criticism <laughs> mindset, but I think uh, also like for the three of us learning to be open to a world that's not necessarily uh, designed in a way that's super familiar to us, mm -hmm. or uh, maybe it doesn't um, from the get-go appear to be particularly architectural. Um, I mean, I think getting getting past, and I love this idea of it sort of oscillating between, um, you know, smaller than a big box store, but but larger than maybe um, a strip mall. I mean, really, one of the things here is as an architectural site, um, it's really about what happens behind that front door. And because none of us had ever been there before, but I think even for... Uh, the audience who's listening to this podcast, there's probably, there's likely something similar to a bounce Milwaukee and in, in most cities and, and even towns. And so, um, you know, these indoor amusement parks, which obviously tend to, I think, really uh, flourish, particularly in parts of the country that, uh, you know, aren't, that don't have great weather year round. And so maybe this is part of sort of thinking about architecture through the lens of not just um, entertainment, um, but also thinking of it as an interior landscape, sort of an alternative to the park. I hadn't thought about it till this moment, but maybe there's a way to conceive of this as a sort of way to speak about um, landscaping and parks and the uh, alternative to the outdoor room that now becomes a sort of room within a room within a room. What was striking is that like once you get into the interior, it's basically like a series of follies. Um, these kind of these kind of bounce 
armatures, and we can go, we can go through each of them. Although maybe we should start with the thing that kind of establishes the landscape, mm-hmm. which is the best carpet in the game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, outside of maybe the um, Portland airport. <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, does anyone want to describe that? Because it is a overwhelming. And also, I think back to this aesthetic question. Like, I think they're definitely riffing on some kind of like Nickelodeon generation. Mm-hmm. Color sensibility. Oh, I kind of want to come back to that, yeah. maybe. Um, I mean, partly, I think it's almost like the image of this carpet is so burned into our retina <laughs> because it's so literally incredibly, <laughs> incredibly colorful. I mean, I guess the way to describe it is that uh, the the even this is obviously a very kind of short industrial uh, carpeting, so not much in the way of a pile. But um, the let's say the background feel, the sort of a modeled, you know, paint gray of sorts a sort of you know not 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 completely a uniform color a bit of visual texture and maybe playing off of this idea of depth or maybe trying to graphically convey it as pile even though it's rather flat um, but then the colors I mean we have these like vibrant purples electric green um, royal blue um, I don't know if I'm missing of sort of a orangey yellow and then obviously the bounce logo um, which keep in mind, this isn't just colorful, crazy carpet that then has been specced, but this is custom carpet because the Bounce logo is there, not just Bounce, Bounce Milwaukee with the skyline of Milwaukee. And if we, you know, look closely enough at this, maybe one of the disappointing things is I don't necessarily (laughs) see any signature buildings uh, of Milwaukee. I was sort of hoping that we'd see some Calatrava in there. Um, But anyhow, I mean, there's obviously this uh, attentiveness to thinking about branding, which is actually, I think, something that the two of you picked up on um, not just from the moment we walked in the door, but like everything to the custom socks or the socks Mm -hmm. that we have uh, now all acquired, um, all the way down to like, let's say the color scheme and the branding of all of the inflatable structures um, and so forth. But really, I mean, a great graphic design lesson. It reminds me of the the Saved by the Bell logo. Like when you're you're thinking about like that 80s generation, like it looks as if the the way the Saved by the Bell logo used to kind of shake and move on the screen, like different things were twirling and rotating, it looks like the carpet could be in motion. And that, I think, emphasizes the kind of immersive quality. As soon as you walk in the door, you're on this landscape of really bright patterned carpet. Um, you're immediately, you know, signing in on an iPad and then they're asking you if you want to wear these colorful socks and the socks perfectly match the carpet. So even you're immediately putting on your body these particular colors, blue, um, fluorescent, um, green and yellow and, and purple, I suppose, too. And I think something we should also talk about with the socks is that, um, you know, we each had a different color respective to our uh, shoe sizes, but also these socks had traction on the bottom, right? This sort of like, would you say almost like a silicone dotted pattern, which seems a little bit odd, but it makes so much sense as you start (laughs) diving into the depths of Bounce Milwaukee. So maybe I think at some point we should talk about really them not just as graphic devices or things that keep our feet warm or um, but really how they function within uh, the pneumatic environments themselves Mm -hmm. yeah it feels like you're like um kind of 
you're getting into your equipment. You feel like an astronaut. Like, you, you know, you strip <laughs> off your your your, uh, your day socks and you put on these very specialized performance $2 a pair of socks, which also, like, what a value. Um, <laughs> we should have stocked up. <laughs> um, we really should have. And I, I think that the premise when they uh, advertise them on the board is that, oh, you would buy these if you didn't have socks, if you came mm-hmm. in in sandals or something like that. Although, we all based had on socks. my brief time in Milwaukee, <laughs> I can't imagine not wearing socks <laughs> in the city. But... Um, I think they should really be pushing them on everyone because they do make an enormous difference to the experience. I mean, one of the things that really struck all of us is that we spent the afternoon shoeless, which was part of it. Um, But also I think that um, the relationship between that piece of equipment and the uniform and the environment is really, really interesting and the way that it develops maybe a more immersive experience, but also something that kind of demands... a higher sensitivity to the environment itself. When you go in, there are several packages available, and we opted to be um, more on the bounce side, although (laughs) the lineup is really impressive. It includes uh, laser tag, um, there are video games, all the arcade games are free if you have a wristband, so you just go up and play them. There's rock climbing, uh, something called an adrenaline zone, which I'm not really sure if we did that or not, um, but that was on the list. Um, and then for I think the know, whole thing is an adrenaline zone. Uh, for an additional fee, you could even you know have your pizza be part of your uh, package, which we initially didn't buy, but then later had a pizza, so maybe we should have paid for it all at once. But but I think that's part of the thing. It's mm-hmm. you pay for some services, and then you can add on later as you're as you're going around the bounce castle. So. We get our um, package. We pay the fee. We realize um, that we're the only ones there. We're <laughs> uh, it's the, you know the middle of a weekday, and we and there were no no kids, no adults, just us. Um, so we kind of had the run the run of the scene, um, and so we went in, and there are three three really large uh, say pneumatic structures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as an expert on these type of structures, um, you know, they, they definitely have distinctness that um, continues the conversation about color. But what kind of struck you coming in? Because they have a very specific construction type, very specific geometries. I'm just curious what what your first impressions were when you saw these structures. Well, I guess my feeling is that they're just so weird. I mean, <laughs> they're so strange when you're outside of them. So as you walk deeper into the space and you encounter these three structures, and one of the things that's fascinating about them, you could say, is is that they sort of partly reveal what's happening on the interior, but you really have to enter into them and sort of be part of it and encounter, I mean, let's say the sort of mystery of each one of those um, pneumatic environments unfolds as you move through it and, and in three very radically different ways. I mean, I think some of the strangeness and 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 I think for listeners, uh, I mean, I think maybe you could say that there's a certain sense that maybe bounce houses, which really that's what these were. I mean, I would say they're sort of uh, 
bounce houses with extra bells and whistles, but these are definitely structures that could have been outside. In fact, we even saw some, you know, I think uh, areas like uh, D-rings and areas where these could actually be anchored into the ground. And so really it is about taking structures that typically would be encountered outdoors as temporary things for birthday parties and so forth and brought into this really like generic um, industrial warehouse. Um, so I love that juxtaposition of like you would have no idea that this world exists until you enter into it. And then there are these worlds within the worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of stepping back and thinking about the weirdness of them. I mean, let's face it, like the forms, the colors, um, just really, really um, I guess like kind of moving us outside of our own narrow like understanding of the potentials of what um, a playground could be. Or I think even for me with my own um, experience with uh, researching pneumatics, both as a historian as well as working with students and designing and fabricating them, you know, it's typically you get together a group of architecture students who are going to design a pneumatic. And when it comes to a conversation about color, you know, it's either going to be white (laughs) or clear or maybe it's going to be silver and reflective or possibly pink, you know, but it's not going to be like electric green, um, royal blue, yellow, and I can't even remember all the other colors, purple. I mean, this was really a, a, a true sort of explosion <laughs> visually of color. So I think right off the bat, I mean, it's um, fascinating to think about what can we as architects learn from being in this environment that is so maybe otherworldly isn't the right description, but um, that is just so strange, both formally as well as graphically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really delighted by that because I, I kind of know them in two senses. I know them in the in, ter- in terms of pneumatic structures. I know them in the abstract um, kind of uh, white, you know, uh, 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 identity you're talking about. And then I also know them as maybe things that like just simply try to, uh, represent other structures. So things like pirate ships or castles. And so like these were really strange beasts because they had uh, a distinct polychromy to them. And at times that polychromy seemed to be, try to be coding something about them. There was always a suggestion there was a suggestion in some of the geometries of the kind of tubes weaving together, mm-hmm. but then the color wouldn't really continue to kind of let you read that tectonic. So they were very strange in the way that like the, the coding between um, form and color. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing we started speculating on was just like um, uh, we, we assumed that they're custom built um, or built to order at least. Mm-hmm. And then there are like a certain design that you pick out of a catalog, but they were very alien, but they held together. Um, because the three of them would re- relate it in terms of, of yeah, color palette. Um, and there were three basic types. There was the octagon model. And then the other two were, I guess I would describe them, and maybe I'm curious how you guys would describe them, as kind of a jungle gym models. Mm-hmm. One which seemed um, scaled for significantly smaller people than the other. <laughs> um, but they each contained slides, climbing walls, tubes, mm-hmm. obstacles. And obstacles, and objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and objects either in fields or just strange objects. <laughs> um, and I, I don't, what was really, I think, fascinating about them is exactly what you're talking about. It felt like the best kind of playground where 
you're not really sure how to use them. <laughs> we found ourselves yeah, yeah, tackling them, yeah. hiding ourselves under them. But yeah, you're not sure how to use them. But I think as objects slash obstacles, they really encourage interaction and play. So you see mm-hmm. see these sort of strange, almost like brick-like nubs that are then sewn on to, you know, this very um, not only colorful but highly durable um, vinyl, I'm guessing it is, um, mm-hmm. that that comprises the pneumatic. And so these nubs, you're sort of like, at one point, I remember uh, Eric and I were try- attempting to climb this little <laughs> obstacle, but like the nubs are too small for our adult feet, so we couldn't really grip onto it. But then the thing is too small to actually climb up. And so I think some of the ambiguity of scale or what these things are, but maybe getting back to some of our almost primal instincts of like, we see something and it's like, well, that looks like I can climb up that. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, So I think, you know, maybe there's something to be said about those, uh, the second and third environment um, that were, you know, maybe sort of attentive to different age groups. Um, Even I think in one of them that was definitely scaled um, probably for younger children, there's a moment where you're sort of climbing around, like, you know, you sort of hoist yourself up into this um, uh, second almost like a mezzanine level, but then there's netting. So you sort of have to duck as you're walking through it. And so there's a feeling of like, you know, maybe I'm a little bit too big for this, but I think that adds to the fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to get back to the first, um, uh, let's call it an arena, because I think Mm -hmm. that's really, and actually I think that might be what the adrenaline zone was, I'm guessing, because it's really a sort Mm -hmm. of sports arena. Um, So what happens on the floor of this octagon-shaped pneumatic, you sort of have to kind of crawl into it a little bit or kind of scale up with your nubby socks to gain some traction to enter into this. And it's surrounded um, by a netting. So you can see into it, but there's an idea of somehow it's its own like isolated zone. And then on the floor, there's all of these different patterns that maybe it was sort of not unlike some of those multi-use game boards where you can like play chess and checkers Mm -hmm. on something and backgammon, like this sort of blurring of the lines between different games. But here we had, uh, took us a while to figure out, but it was soccer, football, and basketball. And there was also hopscotch. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm leaving, oh, Twister, which we did not play. Right. Right. But we played other forms yeah. of Twister. <laughs> and more, um, yeah. So, of course, to go into a space like I had never actually thought about pneumatics. I mean, I think I always think about them as being three-dimensional forms and sort of are they um, air-inflated um, volume or is it like a double-walled system and how is the structure working and how, you know, different ways of sort of mediating between inside and outside. And here, I think it was really the first time that I've been inside of an inflatable where there was that sense of a kind of graphic coding, mm-hmm. um, coding and coating <laughs> that was um, imposed onto it that starts to um, script program. I mean, let's face it, we're architects. So like, yeah. how do we look at this as a way to um, start to communicate ways to interact. And uh, of course, we had the luxury of being the only ones in there. And so we could kind of play by our, by our own rules. Um, I very quickly learned that Eric um, definitely has some basketball chops. <laughs> <laughs> very limited uh, bounce-based environments. So. 
<laughs> I think we all became aware of our, our uh, let's say, strengths and weaknesses or uh, shortcomings and, uh, you know, let's say, um, unknown or uh, previously um, unexplored talents. <laughs> Part of the reason that I wanted to take the two of you there today was, um, you know, let's say a kind of revisitation of the potential um, of bounce houses. And I could also probably speak a little bit about the history of them. It isn't until just very recently when we decided to go there that um, I started wondering, like, what is the history of the bounce house? I could certainly talk to you for um, hours about the history of pneumatics per se, but I think the bounce house is a fascinating um, sort of subset within that history because it's really about the popularization mm -hmm. of pneumatics as playful, temporary structures that are intended for recreation. And so, you know, the little bit of internet <laughs> research that I think we've all done about bounce houses is that um, they were actually technically invented um, in 1959, um, and they were not initially designed to be bounce houses. So um, a gentleman whose uh, name is slipping my mind at the moment, uh, but we can come back to it. Um, but he was actually designing these pneumatic coverings for tennis courts uh, to sort of have all-weather um, tennis courts. was really fascinated by the kind of instantaneity to transform an outdoor environment into an indoor. So he starts inflating these over the tennis courts, notices that his employees are jumping on the roof of them. And that's really the birth of the bounce house. And apparently his wife saw all the potential and sort of marketing this as, uh, you know, something that was a play structure. So originally the bounce house emerged as an inflatable mattress. I mean, literally a sort of uh, thickened ground that had qualities like a trampoline that people bounced on. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm sure safety concerns and standards of people falling off of this. And so then, you know, the, we could say they start becoming architecturalized so that that mat, that extruded floor, now they introduce walls and I think at some point probably netting and in many cases the bounce houses that we see at birthday parties and inflated in parks and so forth, like start, you know, really becoming um fairly enclosed environments with roofs and so forth and how much of that is functional and how much of that is iconographic is probably a whole other conversation but that's one of the things that fascinates me is like here we are jumping around in this bounce house but like how did this actually come into being um, another thing that I'll add to a little bit about the history of both pneumatics and bounce houses is that um, you know, one could potentially say, is the popularization of pneumatics all of bounce houses or even thinking about inflatable pool toys or all the other, you know, even balloons, all of the other sort of ways that we conceive of or interact with inflatables and pneumatics, like it... Uh, say imparts a kind of playfulness, but also maybe also plagues inflatables with the sense that we can't really take them seriously as architecture. I'm curious, since, since you've done history on both the, the well, I guess you, you've done research on the history of them through several 
decades, say, mm-hmm. um, have you seen that or were there moments in history where they were taken seriously and then sort of switched to being taken more lightheartedly through the balance house and then ever come back to serious or like how does that kind of flip flop and and where if if anywhere do you see their um, kind of potential actually being enacted today in architecture? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think the the history of <clears throat> pneumatics with respect to architecture is a really exciting but complicated one. I mean, I think most of us who are familiar with uh, pneumatics and architecture, probably somewhere in our schooling or in our own interests or pursuits, we came across practices like Ant Farm and Archigram and Coop Himmelblau and Hans Holine and the whole, let's say, sort of cast of characters in the 60s and 70s who were operating at this cusp between art practices and architectural practices, let's say highly critical of high modernism, um, part of the second uh, wave of avant-garde, you know, really kind of searching for an alternative. And I think pneumatics really became the go-to for many designers to really quickly test out ideas in a rather rebellious way. And then, of course, Within that history of, let's say, 60s and 70s pneumatics, um, a lot of the work was also um, conceptual or paper architecture. It wasn't actually, I mean, in the case of Archigram, a lot of their great visions of, you know, floating cities and so forth, uh, certainly not intended to be executed, but we could understand their possibilities you know, I think for me in that history, probably the most one of the more fascinating figures and someone who's really helped me to kind of bridge, let's say, that uh, maybe the more avant-garde narrative of the sort of, you know, pop-up radical architecture and moving into um, other and sort of trying to discover new historiographies within 60s and 70s and even now, more recently, 1950s. Um, pneumatic architecture would be Rainer Banham. And so he was a huge proponent for pneumatics, at least initially. Um, And he really romanticized them. I think, you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with um, in his uh, House is Not a Home essay published, I think, circa 1964, 1965. Um, he, he and Francois Dallagray, the artist, conceive of this environment bubble. And it's really a kind of diagram of the possibilities of uh, the pneumatic bachelor pad. I mean, literally sort of the, the pneumatic tent that can go anywhere and that uh, all of the both mechanics uh, that would allow this to be a conditioned and inflated environment, as well as everything down to uh, the record player in the mini bar, like that there'd be all this infrastructure. Um, But then, of course, at the time, the thing wasn't built, but he romanticized inflatables, saw them as being, um, let's say, an alternative to the brick and mortar building. I think at one point he uh, referred to if a pneumatic isn't 
creaking and crackling and making a bunch of sound, then something's wrong. <laughs> Whereas in a building, if those things are happening, there's a problem. And so I think he really loved that. Um, and also, uh, but he also did refer to them as uh, windbags and a kind of, you know, uh, let's say po pointing to their own limitations. Um, so that was, I think, for me, really an, an entry point to figure out uh, were there individuals who saw the potential in pneumatics as being more than just sort of a pop-up momentary uh, reprieve from architecture as we know it? And um, if so, not only who were those individuals, but uh, what were they working on and what were they creating? So. An example would be, and maybe this seems like a character who on the surface would appear to be more aligned with groups like Archigram um, in terms of his radicality, but is Cedric Price. Mm -hmm. Um, so Cedric Price himself actually didn't execute much in the way of pneumatics. Uh, he certainly designed several projects, was fascinated by their potential, um, and he was collaborating with Frank Newby, a British engineer at the time. And what Price and Newby encountered was um, actually a certain degree of skepticism on both, let's say, from a building department and building planning perspective, because, yeah, this sounds like a great idea, but there is no precedent for this. Like, we don't know if the building or the structure is actually going to be safe and is it fireproof and how do we know it's not going to fall down? And then there's also skepticism on the part of clients, like, eh, it's kind Kind of weird. It's not normative. I don't know, which is still, I think, a kind of problem that maybe plagues pneumatics is that we can't, for some reason, really take them seriously as like actual architectural propositions. Um, so anyhow, but but what but what Price and Newby ultimately end up doing is. <clears throat> They take tackle this large research project, get all this funding from um, the British government um, to basically create a manual, <laughs> a compendium of all of the knowledge about pneumatic structures from a variety of fields. They go and interview people all over the world, particularly in the U.S. and parts of Western Europe, um, a lot of engineers who are involved, and they're really trying to create like a go-to specification manual of showing everything from, um, you know, engineering formulas to um, almost in kind of the spirit of whole earth catalog, a kind of uh, who you can go to to contact to get more information and suppliers and examples of built work. Um, so to me, that was really fascinating of someone who maybe from the outside appeared to be just yet another architect at that a historical moment in time sort of toying around with the potential of pneumatics and realizing like there's this really really rigorous research endeavor to make possible um, let's say the potential for pneumatic projects to follow the other projects that I'm tackling and my research and writing are um, tend to typically be architects, oftentimes collaborating with engineers who are trying to explore 
different potentials within pneumatics. Um, so another one would be about um, their potential to perform uh, thermodynamically or trying to really understand how to increase um, their literal performance. So performance, not just as a kind of cultural performance and being expressive, um, but also their ability to be um, smarter, to be better at what they do. Um, another example would be looking at, of course, um, and it's a bit potentially a bit of a dark history, but um, looking at the relationship between uh, pneumatic architecture and the military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And so we, of course, know uh, with a figure like Buckminster Fuller, who was interested in pneumatics, he didn't actually work too much with them. Um, but of course, Buckminster Fuller is being the example of the architect and engineer and inventor who became the darling of, uh, you know, let's say the, the um, uh, alternative um I'm struggling for the word here, um, uh, became the darling of the counterculture in the 60s and 70s, you know, like a lot of these sort of dropout, um, you know, communes and so forth were appropriating um, his designs for geodesic domes, which were actually initially designed for military application. And so when I think of a figure like Buckminster Fuller being able to bridge that gap, it's also wondering, like, within pneumatics, are there figures like, like, like how, do you, how do we reconceive of the history of pneumatic architecture as operating between these polarities of counterculture mm -hmm. and of military industrial complexes? Like, yeah, it's so interesting. I, I think I've seen um, photographs of those um, blow-up pneumatics used by the military to simulate um, giant tanks, right, or or uh, giant ships or something. So that from a, from an aerial photograph, it would look as if you had a fleet. Uh, yeah, when yeah. when in reality, maybe they're all just pneumatics. But it's a maybe like a very short trip or a very long trip then from that blow-up warship to the pirate ship in someone's backyard, which, yeah, which yeah, Eric yeah, mentioned yeah. earlier, right? It's like, right. it's interesting how just they're both blow up ships, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, a very subtle, like change in the color, mm -hmm, change in the mm -hmm. scale, change in the size. And suddenly you have a birthday party or, <laughs> or World War II, you know, right. it's like, it's right. like complete kind of polar opposites, but developing all around the same time period, yeah. um, just with very different, say, audiences in, in mind. <laughs> It makes me wonder if, like, imagine if we went into the equivalent of a bounce Milwaukee, but that if all of the pneumatics that were within that space were actually decommissioned military decoys. So instead of going and, like, touring military planes or ships or so forth, that they would be all these decoys. I mean, maybe this is a business. Yeah, it could be. It, it, it would be camouflage. And they, yeah, yeah. And then the age group might be uh, high schoolers or, you know, it might be, like, it might be like, more like the laser tag crowd, the like slightly older students who are <laughs> the paintball crew. Whitney Moon, thank you so much for bringing us on this extremely fun adventure to Bounce Milwaukee. For images of Bounce Milwaukee, its attractions and other notable pneumatic structures, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us.
Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Schulman.